I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. everyone and welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland and I'm your host today and I'm so excited to welcome back Dr. Erin Phillips. Hi Erin. Hi Shannon, thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming. So Dr. Phillips, as I'm sure all our listeners know, is an internal medicine specialist here at OVC and we are continuing our podcast series on the liver. Thank you. So let's jump right into it. We heard a little bit about your background last time. So um, anybody who wants to know more about Dr. Phillips can certainly listen to our previous liver podcast, which I recommend because they do kind of follow into this one. So let's start talking right away about shunts. So um, Erin, would you mind starting by kind of giving our listeners a review of the vascular system of the liver? Definitely. And um, yeah, if the listeners, as you said, were able to listen to the other podcasts where I described the biliary system, which I would recommend you listen to first before you listen to this one. um, I think of the vascular system anatomy as being very similar to the biliary system. So I would describe it again as starting as a tree with a trunk and branches that get smaller and smaller as the blood enters the liver. But the difference in the vascular anatomy is that the branches will form um, back into larger branches and actually another trunk as the blood exits the liver. So I think of it as basically two trees, the entry tree, so blood runs from the trunk to the branches, and then the exit tree, so the blood runs from the branches to the trunk. I love that. (laughs) Um, So an important function of the liver is taking in all the nutrients that are absorbed from the lumen of your intestines into the intestinal blood system. So there has to be a way for that nutrient-rich blood to get from the intestines to the liver. A bunch of abdominal organs like the spleen, pancreas, stomach, and small and large intestines all drain their blood into a big vessel called the portal vein, which is the trunk of the entry tree. The portal vein splits into the left and right branches once it enters the liver, and the vessels branch smaller and smaller until they become the liver sinusoids, which are like small uh, blood vessels that run between hepatocytes, so very small vessels, and they're like the tiniest branches of the tree. The blood in the sinusoids is very nutrient rich and as it flows through by the hepatocytes, the nutrients are kind of removed or sucked up by the hepatocytes. Um, And then several sinusoids will drain into a blood vessel called the central vein and that's where our second tree or the exit tree starts to form. And the central veins coalesce together to form the hepatic vein, which is the trunk of our exit tree. The hepatic vein then connects to the caudal vena cava and then to the heart and back into the body. Now, one tricky thing is that the hepatic vein is sometimes called the hepatic portal vein. So this should not be confused with the portal vein. These are two separate blood vessels on opposite sides of the liver. So if you hear someone say the hepatic portal vein, they mean the vessel carrying deoxygenated blood that is leaving the liver. And when they say just the portal vein, that is the vessel containing nutrient-rich blood that's flowing from the liver. Amazing. You know, I thought I liked your one tree analogy last time. I love your two trees. Two trees. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you. So then what about some of the common congenital liver conditions that affect the vascular system? So the two big congenital liver conditions I think of are portosystemic shunts and portal vein hypoplasia. So congenital portosystemic shunts, which I sometimes call PSS, occur when you have a large abnormal blood vessel that connects the portal vein or one of its branches to another vein in systemic circulation, which allows blood to bypass or shunt around the liver. 
there are two types of congenital portosystemic shunts. So extrahepatic, which means the shunt is outside of the liver, and intrahepatic, meaning the shunting vessel is within the liver. The most common type of extrahepatic shunt is a portocaval shunt, which means that abnormal blood vessel is connecting the portal vein directly to the caudal vena cava. So this means some of the blood that is in the portal vein will flow into that abnormal vessel and go straight into systemic circulation without ever being exposed to the liver. For portal vein hypoplasia, also called PVH, the issue is occurring with the very small branches of the blood system. So kind of like our liver sinusoids are very small vessels. So during development, some of these vessels don't form completely. So some areas of the liver will just not have a lot of blood supply. um, And those blood vessels will just end before they reach the central vein. A big concern with liver shunting in either scenario is that when the blood shunts or bypasses the liver, every time, you know, blood circulates past, even if it's just a small section of the liver, like in portal vein hypoplasia, the liver will not be getting all the blood supply and nutrients it needs to develop and function properly. So this can lead to atrophy or poor function of the liver, also called hepatic insufficiency. And if the degree of liver shunting is severe enough, it could even lead to hepatic failure. Not good. No, no. So what are the clinical signs that we're watching out for in in the case of a congenital portosystemic shunt? For extrahepatic shunts, these tend to occur in your smaller breed dogs, so things like Yorkies, Havanese, Maltese, Mini Schnauzers, and Pugs. Intrahepatic shunts, I think of more as the larger dogs, so those are going to be Irish Wolfhounds, Labs, Golden Retrievers, and Australian Shepherds. Some clinical signs of a portosystemic shunt um, in are if you have a puppy that's smaller than their you know litter mates or underweight, um, they can have uh, GI signs like vomiting or diarrhea, increased drinking or urination, or frequent urinary tract infections. Another classic sign of a PSS can be neurological abnormalities, which occur from high ammonia in her in your bloodstream. When proteins are digested by bacteria in your intestines, this creates ammonia, and ammonia is absorbed into your portal system. Now, normally this is taken to the liver, and the hepatocytes will absorb the ammonia from the portal vessels and convert the ammonia to urea using the urea cycle. And the urea is put into your bloodstream and can be filtered out through your kidneys into your urine. But if you have a portosystemic shunt, some of the ammonia in your portal system will be able to bypass your liver and go straight into your systemic circulation. Unfortunately, ammonia is toxic to your central nervous system and causes negative effects like um, on the brain, like confusion, disorientation, and seizures. High ammonia levels causing neurological signs is called hepatic encephalopathy. There are some other neurotoxins that can cause hepatic encephalopathy too, but we really think of ammonia as the main one that causes it. Because the ammonia will be the highest in your bloodstream after you've eaten, uh, animals with shunts will typically have the worst neurological abnormalities right after they've eaten. And some of the neurological signs owners can see are things like ataxia, blindness, drooling, and head pressing. So then how would you diagnose a congenital portosystemic shunt? So often these patients are, are tested for shunts or kind of the, the issues first occur because they're having clinical signs that associated that is associated with a shunt. Um, but sometimes it can be if you've detected increased liver values on some routine blood work that you've done. So maybe the animal's coming in to be spay or neutered. You once run some blood work and see that they have high liver values, but they may not have any clinical signs. Some patients with shunts can have very high liver values like ALT and ALP and even low liver function parameters, so albumin, urea, cholesterol, and glucose. But I said some can have totally normal liver values and still have a shunt. 
If you are suspicious of a portosystemic shunt, one of the first tests I would actually do is a urinalysis. So what we're looking for is ammonium urate crystals, which are forming because of those high blood ammonia levels. And ammonium urate crystals are very specific for liver disease, unless you're a Dalmatian. Um, so if you see those in a young patient, you should immediately be thinking, I, I wonder if this you know, animal has a shunt. The next diagnostic test you can do is bile acid testing, which we learned from the last podcast we're only going to do if our bilirubin level is normal. Right. <laughs> so this is one of the big tests that you're going to expect to be an abnormal with a portosystemic shunt, even if your liver values are normal. Because if the blood is able to bypass the liver, then the bile acids that are reabsorbed from the ileum cannot be recycled back into the biliary system, and the bile acids in your circulating blood will be high. The highest bile acid levels we see are with portosystemic shunts, and you can have bile acid levels of 150 or more, um, whereas the normal values we say are like less than 25. Now, a test that we will often run at OVC if we're worried about a shunt is a blood ammonia level, because we can see high blood ammonia levels in dogs with portosystemic shunts, especially if they're having signs of hepatic encephalopathy. The blood ammonia level can be helpful to diagnose a shunt or can give us a clue about why our patient is uh, having neurological signs. We usually say normal blood ammonia levels are less than 60, but in our patient with shunts, it can be 200 or more. The important thing, though, is to make sure you're performing a blood ammonia test on a fasted blood sample, just like on uh, when we do our bile acids, as your blood ammonia can be transiently increased after a meal. Now, if you're still thinking your pet may have a portosystemic shunt after you've done your UA and your bile acids, you can look at doing some imaging of the liver. So a common imaging uh, modality to use is an ultrasound, and we're looking for four clues of a shunt on ultrasound. So those are, you know, obviously seeing an abnormal blood vessel shunting from the liver, that would be a big one. But other ones are things like renomegaly, so enlarged kidneys, microhepatica, or a small liver, and bladder stones, which is those ammonium urate stones. The hard part is that these abnormal blood vessels can be quite hard to find in some dogs. So even if you have a normal ultrasound, I, I still wouldn't say you can definitively rule out a portosystemic shunt. The way to definitively rule out a shunt is with a CT scan with angiography. So angiography means that during the CT scan, you're gonna give the animal contrast IV, so the blood vessels of the liver will be highlighted and a shunt will be more easily detected. So if CT scan with angiography is the definitive way to rule out a portosystemic shunt, why not just skip the ultrasound and go straight to CT scan? So I think that's a good question and something that uh, certainly owners may ask you as well. I think one of the big reasons why ultrasound is done first is that it's cheaper than a CT scan. So an ultrasound usually about six to $700 versus CT scan approximately about $2,000, including the cost of general anesthesia. So if you're able to see the shunt on ultrasound, that's great. And maybe you don't need to go to the step of CT scan for diagnosis. The other benefit of ultrasound is that many pets need little to no sedation to perform an ultrasound, where a CT scan is often done with heavier sedation or general anesthesia. So this is something to consider in a patient that we are worried has a shunt, because often these guys can be very sensitive to the effect of sedative drugs and take a really long time to recover from them. If you have a patient that has high blood ammonia, putting them under anesthesia may exacerbate their hepatic encephalopathy and they could have seizures on recovery. Now, some benefits of heading straight to CT is that you can get straight to that definitive diagnostic and the client may potentially save the money that they would spend on an ultrasound and CT scan if both were needed. 
If a shunt is detected and the owner elects to fix it, the surgeon often will request a CT scan be done to plan for surgery. So even if the shunt was visible on ultrasound, the CT may be needed anyways. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so I don't think there's a hard and fast rule for what you do, but I think the biggest thing I consider when, when I decide should I do a CT scan or an ultrasound is how stable my patient is, particularly in regards to neurological signs. As a factor, if I feel comfortable going straight to heavier sedation or general anesthesia required for a CT scan, um, whereas if they are more unstable, sometimes we will we'll start with an ultrasound and see if we can see an obvious shunt. I do think it's a good idea, regardless, though, to warn owners that both an ultrasound and a CT scan may be needed on our quest to rule out a shunt. Okay, that makes sense as well. Okay. And you were mentioning blood ammonia. I have to say we don't measure that here routinely. Um, can ammonia be tested easily by general practitioners? So I think this is a good question because when I was in general practice, I was definitely under the assumption that ammonia testing was easier to perform than it actually is. Hmm. So the thing with blood ammonia is that it needs to be run really quickly. So it's not one of those tests that you can be sending to an outside lab. At OVC, we run ammonia on a machine that looks like a glucometer and we can get the results back in a few minutes. Now, I'm pretty sure the IDEX catalyst system has the ability to run a blood ammonia in-house, though as a disclaimer, I'm not being sponsored by IDEX, nor have I ever used this test, so I can't speak to its accuracy, but it may be an option if you're really keen to run this test in practice. Measuring ammonia can be nice as well if you want to assess response to treatment or after surgery, um, because if you have a hepatic encephalopathy, sometimes you can see that ammonia level going down. Mm. But I'll reiterate again, you know, hepatic encephalopathy can by, be caused by things other than high ammonia. So I wouldn't rule out hepatic encephalopathy completely or a shunt for that matter if the patient's um, ammonia is normal. So I don't think it's something you have to run, but if you do have access to it, it can really, you know, just help with your, uh, your pieces of your puzzle. Okay. That's really good to know though, not to send an ammonia level out to an outside lab. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And then let's talk about treatments for podosystemic shunts. Yeah, so I think this is uh, the most exciting part. You know, how are we going to help these animals? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, so there are two parts to management of a portosystemic shunt, medical management and surgical management. So medical management consists of three basic things with the goal to reduce blood ammonia levels and control signs of hepatic encephalopathy. So number one, oral antibiotics, so things like metronidazole or amoxicillin. Number two is lactulose. And number three is low-protein diet. So the idea behind oral antibiotics is we're trying to reduce the number of ammonia-producing bacteria in the colon. So less ammonia will be absorbed into the intestinal bloodstream. I will note if you're using metronidazole, we typically use a little lower dose than usual for these patients with um, hepatic insufficiency, so 7.5 mg per kg twice a day, rather than your standard like 10 to 15 mg per kg twice a day. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Uh, for lactulose, um, it's a non-absorbable disaccharide, so it's made of like of galactose and fructose. It actually tastes sweet and is quite sticky. Um, lactulose is not broken down in the small intestine, so it reaches the colon intact. And the col colonic bacteria break down the lactulose and the sugars in the colon actually make the lumen more acidic. And this acidic pH is key as it does funny things to the colonic bacteria. So the lower pH stimulates the bacteria to take up more ammonia as a nitrogen source for um, uh, creating protein. The lower pH also promotes the conversion of ammonia to ammonium, and also acidic pH destroys or kills some of those bacteria that actually produce the ammonia. So it helps in multiple ways. 
A low protein diet is recommended because the higher protein in the diet, the more protein is digested in the intestines, which creates more ammonia. There is evidence that vegetarian diets can reduce signs of hepatic encephalopathy more than animal-based uh, protein diets, so sometimes we'll go more to vegetarian diets as well. One issue with giving a protein-restricted diet, though, is we're often prescribing these diets to animals that are still growing and need some protein for proper growth. Some diet options for growing puppies um, include things like rain plant-based, Rolkin vegetarian, or Purina HA salmon. Uh, these have less protein than typical puppy diets, but still enough that growth shouldn't be too negatively affected. Those traditional liver diets we think of like RC hepatic or Hills LD would really be too low in protein for a puppy and shouldn't really be used for a, gro a growing dog unless you have no other option. Okay, that's good to know. Yes. Uh, other things to consider for medical management are things like anti-seizure medication is if your patient is experiencing seizures. And we typically use Keppra as our drug of choice. Um, things like phenobarbital can be harder in the liver. Um, hepatoprotectants like Zentinel can be given, especially for seeing increased liver values. Patients with intrahepatic shunts are also at higher risk of duodenal ulcers, so we'll often prescribe omeprazole for these guys as well. Ah, okay. Yeah. Now, for surgical correction, uh, the surgery is dif different depending on if it's an extrahepatic or intrahepatic shunt. And before I go any further, I will reiterate that I am not a surgeon, so this explanation will be quite brief, uh, and I would certainly encourage any surgeon who would like to do a more detailed podcast about surgical corrections of shunts to come on here and correct me. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> calling all surgeons. Yes, but I did my, <laughs> my best to fact check with a senior uh, surgery resident as much as possible. Thank you. Um, so for extrahepatic shunts, um, they're typically treated with an amyloid constrictor or cellophane band. And basically the surgeons are going to go in and surgically put an implant around the abnormal shunt vessel. And this implant will slowly tighten around the vessel and close it over time. Intrahepatic shunts are more complicated to close as the shunt is within the liver and dissecting around that vessel to place an implant is hard to do. So intrahepatic shunts are corrected by placing coils inside the abnormal vessel. And the thrombus that develops around these coils is what slowly occludes the shunt. Very cool. Yeah. The reason why we want to close the shunt slowly is because if we close them too quickly, the liver, which has not been used to getting all of 100% of the blood supply, it may not be able to handle getting 100% of that normal blood supply reestablished all at once. So if the blood supply is reestablished too quickly and the liver can't handle it, it causes increased pressure in the portal vein or portal hypertension, which can be painful and cause ascites and fluid to build up in the abdomen. By closing the shunt more gradually, you give the liver time to adjust to that increased blood flow. It's also important to remember that these surgical implants or coils may not close the shunt entirely, but occlude the shunt enough to where clinical signs and negative effects of the shunt on the liver are minimized. It's also possible that surgery may not be successful and a repeat, you know, attenuation is needed. So that's why it's important to recheck the patients after surgery to see how well they're tolerating the surgery and how successful it was. Okay, amazing. Thank you for that kind of overview. I appreciate it. You taking on the surgical explanation. So yes. um, could you maybe give a brief overview of what clients should expect if they're considering surgical correction of a portosystemic shunt? Again, diving into the yes. surgery. <laughs> um, sure. So surgical correction, correction of shunts is typically performed by a board certified surgeon, especially intrahepatic shunts. So owners should, should be prepared that they will likely need to go for referral if they want to have it corrected. And there may be some wait time 
time for the surgery. So not, you know, to expect that they would have that right away. As um, I said before, some surgeons will want a CT scan done before surgery. So that's often the first thing that's done. And then some surgeons also like to start patients on Keppra about a week before surgery and then continue it about a week after, regardless of whether the animals are having seizures before surgery or not. This is because one of the post-op risks is the development of seizures that are refractory to treatment. And this seems to be more uh, more of a common issue in toy breed dogs. Our hope is that we can prevent these seizures by pre-treating with Keppra, though there are mixed reviews, especially in cats, if this is super effective in doing so. After the surgery, the patients will often stay in the ICU for about two days for monitoring um, because there are some other complications we want to look out for, like portal hypertension, as I mentioned before, hypoglycemia, and prolonged recovering from anesthesia. The patients will continue on their shunt medications and their low-protein diet initially after surgery, and these can eventually be weaned down or hopefully stopped if they respond well. Now let's talk cost because I think this can be a big hurdle for owners when they're trying to decide if they are going to go for a shunt surgery. So the cost of an extra hepatic shunt ligation is approximately four to $6,000. And for an intrahepatic shunt can be ten to $12,000 depending on how many coils are used. And these are you know, OVC quotes. And these prices, as I said, are recently confirmed. Um, and it's important to remember, these costs do not include necessarily the pre-surgical CT scan, which is about $2,000. So, uh, it is an expensive undertaking. Yes, yes, it is. Now, after surgery, owners should be prepared that they will need to bring their pets back for recheck blood work to see how successful uh, the uh, shunt ligation was. For intrahepatic shunts, owners should also be prepared to keep them on a meprazole long term. The blood work that we're usually rechecking are really looking for things like, are we seeing improved liver values, improved liver function parameters, rechecking ammonia if it's available, and rechecking bile acids. Now, one of the issues with assessing response to shunt ligation is that in some patients, they may have multiple abnormalities with their liver. So they've had this, you know, portosystemic shunt, but they may also have some other concurrent liver disease as well. So this may get in the way of getting our liver values totally back to normal just by correcting the shunt alone, if that makes sense. So the big things we are looking for as a sign our shunt surgery was successful is that our liver functional parameters and our ammonia are improving, um, our clinical signs are improving. Improving. Our bile acids may improve or go back to normal, but in some cases they may not, especially hmm. if they have some other underlying liver disease, or maybe if we didn't get that, you know, shunt completely closed. So I don't always use bile acids alone as a way to assess that the shunt surgery was successful. If the animal is doing really well in other ways, their liver functional parameters are normal, um, then I think that's a sign of a, you know, a successful surgery. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. The best case scenario with shunt correction surgery is, I said, that we get improved liver function, improve signs of hepatic encephalopathy, and we can taper or eventually discontinue our meds. The prognosis for a portosystemic shunt is um, that's extra hepatic is actually quite good with 85% becoming normal within four months of surgery. Intrahepatic shunts can be a little harder to completely close, so the prognosis may not be as good as the extra hepatic shunt. Okay, that all makes sense. Thank you. So then why is medical management initially initially done for portosystemic shunts? Like, why can't you just take those animals to surgery right away? So 
I think that's an important thing to know as well, because I do think sometimes um, some veterinarians will have an owner that has a portosystemic shunt they're trying to treat medically um, and they'll feel, you know, I really need to get this animal to surgery right away, right? right. Mm-hmm. So the importance of stabilizing patients medically prior to surgery is, uh, is you know, can't be, I guess, understated. And it's important for owners and the referring veterinarians to understand that there is, this really is a necessary step before you go to surgery. So if your patient is unstable and having lots of neurological signs due to their shunt, these are really not ideally the ones you want to be rushing into surgery. No. One of the reasons is that the surgery, as we just learned, is not a quick fix. You know, it takes some time for that correction to close the shunt. So even after you do the surgery, it's not like you would expect the signs to completely be controlled right away post-op. Also, if the patients are having a lot of neurological signs pre-op, then they're at high risk of decompensating and developing refractory seizures post-op. The other thing is that surgeons often prefer patients be a certain age or size before their shunt is corrected. So for extrahepatic shunts, it's usually about six months of age. And for intrahepatic shunts, it's about 10 months of age. So often these patients are diagnosed with the shunt when they're a lot younger. So they will need to be started on medical management while they're waiting for their surgery. So I want to stress that we really want to try to to do our best to manage patients as much as possible medically before they go to surgery. Okay, that makes sense to me as well. So... We talked a little bit about surgical costs being fairly high, understandably, given the amount of skill uh, and everything else involved in the procedure. But what happens if you have an owner who has a dog with a shunt and they just can't afford surgery? Yeah, exactly. So as we said, surgical location of a shunt can be quite expensive, and there's certainly owners that may not be able to afford it. Um, Patients can be medically managed and actually achieve some long-term success without being surgically corrected. Though statistically speaking, the survival time is better if they're treated surgically rather than just medically. That being said, medical management alone would be an acceptable option if an owner couldn't afford surgery. In this case, the owner should be prepared that they will be giving medications lifelong and, and need to continue to follow up. It's hard to know how long a patient will survive with medical management alone. One statistic said the average survival time of a dog with a portosystemic shunt treated medically is about two years, but it depends on how severely they're infected and some may, dogs may live longer. So I think if you're, the owner can't afford surgery, it's fair to continue treating with medical management and see how they do. Okay, okay, thank you. Okay, so then what about cats? Usually more complicated. Um, Are there any differences between cats and dogs? Yeah, so there are a few differences. Um, I would say definitely cats, we see less with portosystemic shunts than dogs. So I think, you know, with with a young dog with elevated liver values, I think a shunt should be high on your list. With cats, less common, though still can happen. Cats tend to have extra hepatic shunts with fancy breeds like Persian, Siamese, and Himalayans being more at, at risk. An interesting clinical sign with cats with portosystemic shunts is that they can have copper-colored irises and they tend to drool. So if you see a young cat with copper-colored irises, especially if it's drooling, you should be thinking a shunt. Also, cats can have a higher risk of developing refractory seizures after surgery, so important to warn owners of that. Okay, and I have definitely seen a cat with a copper-colored irises. It's pretty striking. (laughs) Their eyes look really, Mm -hmm. really interesting. Okay, so I think that is everything we can cover on (laughs) Porosystemic Shots. Thank you so much. That was really (laughs) thorough and interesting. So um, now how about we can focus on portal vein hypoplasia. So how is that diagnosed and managed? Yes, I agree. Enough of that surgery talk. Um, (laughs) So remember when I said earlier that portal vein hypoplasia is an issue where the very smallest branches 
of the blood system in the liver have not developed properly. So the liver is not going to get um, blood supply kind of to all areas of, you know, that, that it normally should. So congenital portal vein hypoplasia used to be called microvascular dysplasia. So kind of either term can be used, but this is the more recent term. And the breeds at risk are going to be, I guess, kind of similar to your extrahepatic shunt. So things like Maltese, Karen Terriers, and Yorkies. So when you have decreased blood flow in small areas of the liver, the signs and degree of hepatic encephalopathy that develop can really depend on how much of the liver is affected. The severity of portal vein hyperplasia, I kind of think of as a spectrum with some patients barely having any negative effects and some patients being very, very affected and developing hepatic failure. Yeah, but, but often patients with portal vein hypoplasia are not nearly as clinically affected as patients with a portosystemic shunt. In some cases, patients can even have a portal vein hypoplasia and a portosystemic shunt, so both of them at the same time. Because it can take time for the negative effects of PVH to cause signs or changes on blood work, often these patients may not show any abnormalities until they are middle-aged or older versus the shunts that tend to be younger. Clinical signs of PVH are are often things like GI signs, so vomiting, diarrhea, and appetence, and the can sometimes have neurological signs, so it's less commonly seen than with shunts. These patients can have high ALT, but early in their life, their liver values may be normal. Abdominal ultrasound can often be normal, and bile acids can vary, and in about half of the dogs, they can even be normal. Okay. Yeah, and if they are increased, I wouldn't expect it to be as much as when we see our portosystemic shunt. So those ones are going to be really high versus some of these with portal vein hypoplasia can just be mildly increased or normal, but once again, it can depend on the spectrum. And the same with the blood ammonia. Typically, we don't see it as, as being high unless they're very severely affected. Okay. Now there is a blood test that could help differentiate between a portosystemic shunt and portal vein hypoplasia, and that's called a plasma protein C test. So protein C is an anticoagulant that's made by the liver, and in PVH it will usually be normal, but in portosystemic shunts it's often low. So that's one kind of blood test that a, a veterinarian could use. Um, now how can we definitively diagnose portal vein hypoplasia because as we said a lot of the blood findings can be sometimes like pretty pretty unremarkable or just a mildly increased ALT because it's an abnormality with the smallest blood vessels of the liver these abnormalities are too small to be seen on CT scan so we could perform a CT scan with angiography in a patient that you know we suspect might have portal vein hypoplasia but really we're doing it more to rule out the presence of a portosystemic shunt but we can't say for sure they have PVH just on the CT scan To diagnose it, we need to do a biopsy of the liver. So on histology of our liver, we will see these characteristic abnormalities like small or absent portal veins, proliferation of hepatic arterioles, and hepatocyte atrophy in areas of the liver. Now, I briefly mentioned this in the last podcast, but how do we do a liver biopsy? So the best chance of getting a representative sample is by taking a surgical liver biopsy as ultrasound guided true cut liver biopsies don't tend to be that good for diagnosing liver disease and sometimes we can miss it. At OVC, we perform laparoscopic liver biopsies, which allows us to to make small incisions um, and go in with instruments to collect small samples of the liver, which means a faster recovery for the patients. We usually take several uh, samples from different liver lobes and send them for histology, bacterial culture, and copper quantification. The big risk of liver biopsies is bleeding, so you want to perform coagulation testing before surgery. 
The patients can often go home the same day or the day after, and the cost for lap liver biopsies is about two to three thousand dollars. Now, I usually warn owners that if we're going to do a CT scan to investigate liver enzymopathy or elevated bile acids, and we don't see an obvious shunt on our CT scan, then the next step would be to perform a laparoscopic liver biopsy, either in the same anesthesia or on a separate day, to allow us to fully evaluate the liver. Now, treatment for PVH really depends on how um, significant the disease is and how uh, much the patient is effective. And it's important to remember this uh, condition can only be managed, not cured. So there's no surgical treatment in this case. Right. Now, some dogs only show elevated liver values, and these can be managed with hepatoprotectants like Zentinol or Ursodyl. If they have hepatic encephalopathy, they can be managed the same way as we talked about in the portosystemic shunts. There are some patients with PVH that have minimal progression of disease throughout their life and can have a normal life expectancy. So you can, you know, say to these owners, sometimes they may have this mild liver enzymopathy when they're young, but they may be quite stable and they'll live a full life. The median survival time of dogs with PVH is good with most dogs living five or years after they were diagnosed. Okay, thank you. So, so we talked a lot about congenital liver shunts in young animals, but are there any times where patients can develop liver shunts later in life? Yes, and these are called acquired portosystemic shunts. So these are abnormal blood vessels that develop between the portal vein and systemic circulation, so similar to our congenital portosystemic shunt. And on ultrasound, they'll often look like this little cluster of tiny blood vessels up near the kidney. Mm, okay. Now, a big cause of acquired shunts is when you have portal vein hypertension. So portal vein hypertension is exactly how it sounds when the pressure inside of the portal vein is higher than it should be. So the pressure builds up and has nowhere to go. So these shunts form as a kind of pop-off valve to release some of that pressure in the portal vein. So portal hypertension can develop from conditions like severe liver disease, so like hepatic fibrosis or cirrhosis, which is basically when there's lots of scar tissue forming in the liver. And it kind of makes sense. A nice, healthy liver can handle all this blood flowing into it. But if it's very fibrosed and kind of shrunken, there's going to be more pressure as that blood's trying to go in. And the pressure is going to increase in the portal vein because that's kind of um, upstream from where that blood is flowing. I see. Okay. Yeah. Now, other abnormalities can be a congenital abnormality in the development of your portal vein itself. So we sometimes call that portal vein atresia if the blood's kind of not flowing through there properly, or if you have a blood clot in your portal vein. Now, acquired shunts can also develop uh, if you've tried to surgically occlude a congenital portosystemic shunt. So say you went in and you did your occlusion, but maybe you occluded it too quickly or the liver was too diseased to be able ha to handle all that increased blood flow. And then these acquired shunts will occur secondary to that. But probably the most common cause of acquired shunts is severe um, and end-stage liver disease. Acquired shunts can cause similar signs to congenital shunts like hepatic encephalopathy and GI signs. With portal hypertension, the increased pressure in the vessel also causes fluid to leak out into the abdomen. So kind of like what happens if you have more pressure in your pulmonary vessels when you have heart disease and all that fluid leaks out. Um, and when the fluid is leaking into the abdomen, we call that you know ascites. Unfortunately, patients with acquired shunts are often in liver failure, so their prognosis is usually pretty poor. As these shunts developed, you know, from portal hypertension, unless we can correct the underlying cause of the hypertension, then surgically closing off these acquired shunts will really not be successful because new ones will just reform after surgery. Ah, okay. 
Sounds like a very bad situation. Yeah, Yeah, not good. Okay, so thank you so much. (laughs) Really interesting. Could you kind of pull it all together a little bit and relate the information we learned today about PSS and PVH with kind of a common clinical scenario that the vet students might experience when they get into practice very soon in a few months, maybe (laughs) if they're in final year? I definitely can. Um, So one scenario that, you know, especially a new vet might experience is that they've performed some routine pre-anesthetic blood work for a space or a neuter and they've detected an increased ALT in an asymptomatic puppy. So once they've rechecked this value, maybe in one to two weeks, just confirm that it is persistent. Now they need to decide what they're going to do next. So as a review, the first thing is really to make sure those owners aren't seeing signs that could be consistent with hepatic encephalopathy. As some first-time puppy owners may think some of these behaviors are normal, so really screening for that. Are they truly asymptomatic or not? And then your first diagnostics to consider are going to be urinalysis and bile acids. If those are showing abnormalities consistent with the shunt, then you can consider performing an ultrasound or referring to a specialist. If the UA and the bile acids are normal, you could recheck the liver values again in a couple months to look for progression or could still offer an abdominal ultrasound. If the ultrasound is not definitive for a shunt and the hepatic enzymopathy is persistent, then referral to a specialist for a CT scan plus minus liver biopsies would be the next step. If you had a patient that had that classic signalment, you know, asymptomatic and mildly increased ALT and otherwise everything else was normal. So really seeming kind of consistent with our portal vein hypoplasia and we're really seeing minimal progression of liver values over time and that owner is not interested in referral, then I do think it's reasonable for a veterinarian to suspect, okay, these patients probably have portal vein hypoplasia, especially if these are these little dogs, it's not progressing. And even if the owners haven't gone all the way to liver biopsies to definitively know, think they can say, this may be that scenario where they have this mild liver enzymopathy for the rest of their life. We'll monitor it to see if it progress, but otherwise they may live a long, happy life. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. I always love the (laughs) clinical scenario so that we see, you know, what does it mean? Yes. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me talk about the liver so much. (laughs) That's okay. I love it too. So yeah, I I would like to mention that our, as usual, our podcast today has been sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust is dedicated to research that advances the health and well-being of animals. Thank you for everything you do, Pet Trust. And you can check out their website at www.pettrust.ca. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. And please also follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. Take care. See you next time. Bye.